0: Hello, and welcome back to From the Center, the podcast of the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges, the director here, and I'm very happy to be here with my friend and colleague, Junius Johnson, who is going to be talking with us today about civilization and the kinds of uh, elements that make a civilization and are necessary for passing on the elements of civilization to the next generation. We've been talking at length about uh, language in a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, last week we talked about um, thanksgiving, how important we actually what we did Genius, was we started with um, a session on uh, sacrifice and mm-hmm. how important sacrifice, what the role that sacrifice plays in all sorts of different religions, and how Christianity offers sacrifice too, but in a different sort of mode and mood. Uh, And that led us, that understanding of sacrifice led us to the idea of Thanksgiving. Mm. And so that worked out perfectly because just last week, or two weeks ago now, I guess, uh, was Thanksgiving. And now we've got uh, a Thanksgiving session in place, too, because it's so important. Um, I remember Chesterton saying at one point, uh, uh, somebody asked him why he was a Christian. And he said, uh, well, I'm happy and I wanted somebody to thank. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, what I'm hoping you and I can talk about, maybe, is stories. I know Mm -hmm. you've been writing a book on fairy stories, Mm -hmm. but let's talk about you for just a second. Tell me about the sorts of things that you're doing today. I know you are a Yale grad, went to, uh, did your PhD at Yale uh, in uh, theology?
1: In theology, yeah.
0: Theology, right. Very good. And I know you've written some books, can you tell us about those?
1: Well, my first book was uh, revisiting my dissertation project.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: and essentially what I was trying to do was trying to understand um, the great 20th century Catholic theologian Hans von Balthasar.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Uh, who is most famous for his work on beauty and for bringing beauty back to the attention of the theological community in the 20th century. Um, and I really, really love his way of thinking and his whole approach to things and whatnot. But, mm-hmm. um, but I just felt like you know, he only died in 1988, and, and there was a lot of there's been a lot of attempt to try to figure out okay how are we gonna this guy wrote like a hundred books mm. I mean I mean mm. it literally like a hundred books how are we gonna get a handle on that and so as I was going through working on that I realized that there were some fundamental concepts that he didn't mean the same thing by that we normally tend to mean by them and I realized that we kind of needed to go back and look at his metaphysics and see what does he mean when uh, he says freedom uh. what does he mean about some of these things in uh, order uh. to Get right. So my first book was trying to really understand um, what a Balthasarian metaphysic would look like if he'd sat down to write one out, which he never wow. did. Wow.
0: Wow. That's wonderful. I, I read uh, Seeing the Form. Oh, yeah. And that's so influential on all of my thinking about yeah. aesthetics, I
1: think. It, it's, a, it's really a major, major intervention in yeah. Western thought. It's so good. Then I did some work on the atonement. Um, oh. I was asked to write a book about uh, doctrines of the atonement, and so I looked at the patristic and medieval periods of the church and tried to map nine different models of atonement across the wow. first... Fifteen hundred years or so of the of the church, um, with. Uh essays about each one, important figures, bibliographies, primary and secondary sources. Mm. Just to mm. kind of help people doing research into those areas to be able to get the lay of the land and figure yeah. out where to go to learn more. What
0: a great resource that would be.
1: Yeah, that was fun. And then uh, and then I did my third book was a translation of some Latin um, text by Saint Bonaventure, who was a contemporary of Thomas Aquinas. Yes. And um, his sentence commentary, which is the sort of first big thing they all had to produce in the medieval university uh, it was more than a dissertation. It was it was kind of a you know a, a major first book project, and um, it's never been translated into English. Huh. And so I took the entire section on the Eucharist and translated that whole stretch of questions um, with uh, extensive notes. The notes about killed me, um, and a really really. Extensive theological introduction as well, talking about the the theology behind his understanding of the Eucharist and whatnot. It's you know he's a Catholic in the Middle Ages after Lateran IV, it's a transubstantiation type theory, but he, he comes at it very differently than Aquinas does, mm. and he winds up in some different places than than Aquinas does. And so it was exciting to me to. Be able to present some of that.
0: Do you contrast uh, them in the
1: book? Not too much because I'm really trying to let him speak for himself. Sure. But um, sure. but I, in the introduction, I do point out some things that, that distinguish him, mainly on, on the question of realism. Aquinas is going to say once you make this, once it's been made into the body and blood of Christ, it's the body and blood of Christ.
2: Yeah. And so yeah. if a mouse it gets change it, back,
1: yeah, if a mouse gets it, you got to catch that mouse <laughs> and you got to burn him and wow. put the ashes in the altar in a special little receptacle you've got. For just this purpose. Bonaventure says it's instituted for human use.
2: Hmm. And
1: so the moment it's no longer suitable for human use, it reverts to being just bread. And if a mouse gnaws on it, it's not suitable for human use anymore, so you can just let it go.
0: Ah, uh, very interesting.
1: And then I wrote a book on uh, that was a long time in com- coming for me, very dear to my heart. It's called The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. Um, and it was, I was trying to answer the question, what's a theological account of what's happening in the moment when I find something beautiful?
0: Mm, terrific.
1: And that was, that, that really brought together so much of my experience and my thinking from the time I was 16 on. And so that was a really special book for me. And then this is my, my most recent book is on teaching fairy stories. And the title of that is a, is a reference to Tolkien's great essay on fairy stories. Yes. Um, and it's my attempt to, um, Join the conversation. There's, there's a whole series of things. Uh, MacDonald and Tolkien and Chesterton and Lewis have written so compellingly about fantasy literature and fairy tales and these sorts of things mm-hmm. and that have meant so much to me in my life, both the literature itself and this Christian reflection on that literature.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, um, But I felt like there's a lot there was a lot more to say than where they got to. They were blazing the trail, but there's, you know, there's more to work to do still. So this is my attempt to take out the baton from them and, and move that ball down the field oh, a bit further. Oh, that's wonderful.
0: That's great. Well, and you're doing some work for Chris Perrin, aren't you? Right
1: yeah, now? I'm working Telling with uh, Classical Academic Press on their new Humanitas series of uh, history textbooks. With um, So the idea is that each text is uh, a semester of high school is 50 primary source readings, <laughs> um, and we're kind of letting history speak for itself. And so yes. rather than you know, some guy writing a textbook about what happened in ancient Rome. Let's let's read their historians. Let's read the primary documents. And, and fontes. Yeah, exactly right.
0: Yeah. It's
1: interesting, you know, robust, good introductions and afterwards to help create the connective threads so you can follow through... Helps the students to see how this is significant and how it connects to what came before and went after. But the bulk of the volume is really just reading these primary sources, starting with ancient Greece and going all the way through um, American oh, documents. Such
0: a blessing to have these students be acquainted with uh, all of those great books.
1: It's a lot of fun. I'm and learning. And they wrestle
0: games. with them the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's not an immediate thing. I remember I was talking to a student one time, and this happened more than once actually. They say, "Well, we, we know about your gap year program. We want to know what books you read." And I said, "Well, we start off with the Odyssey." Mm-hmm. And if the student says, oh, I read that in ninth grade, <laughs> then I know he's just exactly the kind of person that should come and study with us because he's the way in the world he got out of it what he needed right. to from ninth grade. That's right. And I read it at 60, and I'm still learning stuff, you yeah. know. So yeah. the idea that you uh, read it once and have done with it is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really tearing education apart. Um, the notion of it, it's a checklist, right? And exactly. If, if you have done it then you're good. No, no, no. Anything worth reading is worth reading twice, first of all. And second of all, these are you know, these are lifelong relationships. And so I always tell my students, you know, this is not that one time you read the Divine Comedy. This is the first time you read the Divine Comedy. This is the beginning of your lifelong relationship with Dante, which I hope will be a friendship. Sure. It might not be And I'm, yeah, I'm, and I'm and you okay may with disagree sometimes. You may be your antagonist, but don't let go of him. Yeah. Take him with you.
0: Yeah, it's very really, really wise. Well, that brings me to the kind of thing I was hoping we could talk about today. Talking about the civilizations of the world and how they have some things uh, in common. Mm. How they have many cultural things may be differently, but they might have some of the same assumptions underneath. Like Lewis in the end of uh, Abolition of Man talking Mm. about the Tao, you know, and how Mm -hmm. similar, not exactly the same, but similar a lot of things are in human experience. And so I'm trying to get at what it is about civilization that We need to be sure to defend, Mm. you know, if we're looking at the decline of our civilization today, I think, and we are in the West, uh, and so many universities nowadays don't even want to bother with teaching Western civilization anymore as though it were some sort of horrible thing. I don't. I don't equate Western civilization with Christianity by any mm-hmm. means, but I do critique Western civilization through the eyes of Christianity, yeah. and I think that's the right thing to do with any civilization. Yep. Uh, and yet, uh, Western civilization is the one that is has been the most steeped in Christianity for the longest time, and mm-hmm. so it has uh, elements that are uh, assumptions, you know, that we have. I think now. Uh, that are Christian but what I'm really after is trying to figure out what is it that makes a civilization stand mm. you know uh, and we've talked at length about axioms and about uh, about uh, uh, elements like sacrifice and elements like uh, like language and so on like that but I was thinking language if we're going to study language as an element at the foundation of civilization language turns out to be be brought to our attention through story. Mm. Uh, some some people say that you know seventy eighty percent of the Bible it's, it itself is story, mm-hmm. right? The history of the Jews, the the kind of parables that were told, uh, other art forms like uh, singing and poetry and. Wisdom literature and so on, like that. Mm. Um, What I was thinking with you, with your on fairy stories uh, book, I was just wondering if you could talk with me a minute about the importance of story in civilization. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Have you? Are you? Am I? Am I? barking up the right tree with this? I absolutely think so. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, I mean, I, I think I would go so far as to say, uh, you know, i be careful what I commit myself to on, on the, the Center podcast, but I, sure. I think I would go so far as to say that um, it is stories that create civilizations, mm. not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, before before you had the things like the Epic of Gilgamesh or whatever mm. the primitive material was that would have ultimately turned turn into the Epic of Gilgamesh, you had people living together,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but once they could rally around a common story, a story that communicates to them both ideals about um, what they value mm-hmm. um, and what they devalue, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, explanations of why the world is the way it is sure. and why they encounter why they encounter the resistance they do and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And also a sense of identity explains mm-hmm. to themselves so true. who they are. So true. Until those things are in place, you don't have a people yet. You don't have a civilization. You've just got people living
0: together. Right. It, the Greeks themselves argued that people who didn't speak Greek were barbarians, right? Because they That's only right. sounded like bar, 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 bar. That's right. So their, their Greek language gave them stories that, like the Homeric stories, that uh, That told them who they were, that told them what what was important, uh, I explained to them how it is, like you say you run into resistance in the world is yeah. it it 's because Poseidon is mad at you, you know or whatever yeah. um, i was, I remember seeing a a, a a sculpture in the British Museum um, that was called the apotheosis of Homer maybe mm. you 've seen it and and at the uh, bottom of it is a man sitting in a chair with a king and a queen behind him, standing behind him, and and at his feet are two children, and off to the right of him, then uh, in front of him is this long line of hum- of people, of mm. human beings with uh, gifts, mm. you know, grain and and the bringing things to him to give to him. So this is this is raising this man up to some sort of honor. Well, yeah. it turns out that's Homer, yeah. and the two children at his feet are the Iliad and the Odyssey, <laughs> see? So, and then in, this, in the two bits that are above it uh, are pictures from heaven, basically, mm. what we would call heaven. Anyway, the Greeks understood. And they have um, the nine muses mm. listed there all in various places. And at the very top, you have Zeus and you have Nemesine, the woman with whom he had all these nine muses, mm. and Apollo. And so it's this hierarchical picture uh, that, that sets Homer in the place of honor. The mm. king and queen of Greece are standing behind him. He's mm-hmm. not in the place of, they're not in the place of honor. Anyway, th- it was so important for them to see the two children, you know, the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, as the, as the writings, the stories that gave them all the things you just mentioned.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and what's fascinating about Homer... Um, because Homer and Hesiod represent this sort of limit point. We can't really get behind them. We've got a few fragments of things, but that's basically as far back as we can go in that civilization. Mm -hmm. And um, anyone who comes to the Iliad uh, having, you know, we all come to the Iliad knowing some things, and so we come to the Iliad with expectations, right? When I first read the Iliad, I was really confused and disappointed mm-hmm. because we're starting in year, year 10 of the war. Oh, yeah, right. So, like, where's the launching of the 1,000 ships? I thought I'd see a 1,000 ships launch. No, they're yeah. all beached. They've been here forever. Sure. Um, I thought we would see the death of Achilles. and We don't see the death of Achilles. Mm-hmm, I thought right. we would see the Trojan horse. How is there no Trojan horse in the Iliad? Where did that come from if it's not in the Iliad? Well, the thing is... Homer knows when he composes the Iliad that we know the story already. Right. So even as he gives us the story that is the the fountain of all of our stories, he's assuming earlier stories that we don't mm-hmm. have access to. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he's able to be the literary um, concentration of those things because there is already a Greek people because there are already those stories that he's playing with mm-hmm. to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so true. So he's really. Uh, bringing a kind of glue to their yeah. to their life, but he's bringing all the pieces together. And
1: well, and one thing to note about the Iliad um, is that it's trying to explain something, because there has been a fall in Greek civilization already. There were no Minoan civilization is past, right. but there also was there was a regression technologically, um, and they're so they're living in kind of a dark age when mm-hmm. Homer's writing, mm-hmm. looking back on this glorious past. And mm-hmm. so the Trojan War explains how we wound up here because all of the heroes died. It ends the age of heroes. Mm -hmm. And you can see evidence of this. Homer doesn't know what chariots are for, right? Mm -hmm. So the heroes Mm -hmm. get in the chariots, they ride in a battle and then they get off the chariots and they fight and they get back in the chariots to go back. (laughs) The whole point of having chariots is so you can ride through and cut people down while you're going through, right? right? They don't have chariots in Homer's time They remember them, but they don't have them. And so he doesn't even understand how to use them in battle. And so the story is, it's gathering this past material together, but it's also gathering it in such a way to explain to folks where we are now. Hmm. And we see, Homer himself sees, there's power in this for giving my people a future. As well.
0: Ah, right. right.
1: Because the people right. perish for lack of vision. Sure. And so I can, if I can not just tell the stories of the past that, are, that explain how we got here, but also tell them in such a way that it marks out a path for the future, this is who we need to be, then the stories, this is what all good stories do. They both communicate culture and they create culture.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the Odyssey, you have all sorts of examples of what it means to be a good man yeah uh, uh, the, the arete the excellence of man, right, and so all the cleverness that Odysseus exemplifies in in his different uh, uh scenes um tells tells the Greeks what it means to be a good man, what, what uh, a comparison between the the uh culture of the Sailors and the cultures, uh, culture of the uh, Cyclops, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with one eye. That mm-hmm. So you have a sense of what not to be too, right? Yeah. You don't let this happen to you kind of thing. The reason I like having those books read, apart from just the fact that they need to be read, they just knock out good stories, uh, is that I want my students to realize the effect of stories on our civilization Mm -hmm. so that the Bible actually comes to become our book to build a civilization on, you know?
1: Yeah, that's right. One of the things that also has to happen in the Odyssey is that Homer's got to correct himself a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. You know... 20 years on or however long it was later um, he's looking back and he's looking at his Achilles and everyone's loving Achilles and whatnot. and so he says oh. I've got to bring Achilles back and I've got Achilles say it would be better to be a slave in the land of the living than to rule in the land of the dead
2: yes. you know, the
1: thing that I sold it all for that eternal glory which he has demonstrably gotten we're still talking about Achilles 3,000 years on mm-hmm. That Achilles himself, now that he's experienced the underworld, would say, it wasn't worth it. I made mean, the wrong choice.
0: That's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, in your book, let me turn to your book here. I've got a few places I'd like to bring up because I thought they were so interesting. Uh, in chapter three, you start off by talking about your own reading experiences mm. and you talk about how you enjoyed books as a child and mm-hmm. and all that but then when you got to school and they told you you needed to read these books you didn't want to That's right. What tell us about what your experience with all yeah, that? Yeah, so I mean what what's going wrong with education that it would yeah, make that problem?
1: I, I was in public education. I think that's an important background for this. Um, and um, you know, they had their they had their canon of books that it was important for, you know, young children to read in middle school and, and high school and whatnot. And um, and it seemed to be the case, the best I could d- discern from what was being handed to us was that they thought that we were all way too flighty and we needed to have our feet firmly anchored in the ground. We needed to face facts uh-huh. and enjoy, you know, understand uh-huh. reality. So it was constant a stream of you know, young boy who has a very difficult life, living on the frontier or whatever, meets an animal and it becomes his best friend and he loves the animal, and then the animal dies. Eef. You know, it's all this, right. all, they call right. them coming-of-age stories. Uh-huh. But what it means to come of age is to lose the thing you love. Oof. It means to recognize that the world is not a magical place. And that you have responsibilities in it, mm-hmm. and it's you've got to let go of those childish things and, and take up your hammer and get to work. Well, as a as a young man growing up in a very difficult circumstances, um, struggling to believe that life was worth living at all,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that was exactly the wrong thing mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I needed I needed a story to show me a way to live, mm-hmm. not to put deposit me back in the same. An unbearable heaviness that I lived in every day anyway
0: mm-hmm. well do you think the, the, do you think the idea was i 'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt do you think the idea was that by by giving you Faulkner or giving you uh, old Yeller or whatever it was you read uh, they they were kind of giving you a, a, a sympathetic view of your own life that is yes this has happened to other people before and you've gotten through it or something
1: that's, that's, that that's quite fair? possibly true that's, that's quite probably what, what underlies it but here's what here's where I think the, the misstep was yeah. there was no transcendence in any of these stories right gotcha and so there was nothing to hope for
2: yeah. right? okay
1: so this guy he, he made it through he lost his deer the yearling right yeah. and he grew up to become a guy who could run his farm and raise children why should I care yeah. That's not what I want out of life. Yeah. I don't know specifically what I want out of life, but I know I want more than what I'm experiencing now. Mm-hmm. And these books are telling me that I've got to make peace with the world as it is. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I felt a deep conviction. I was not a Christian. and I felt a deep conviction that um, there could be no peace between me and the world as it was, as wow. it presented itself to me. Um, either, either it had to be better and I wasn't seeing all of it, and so I was poking my head in every wardrobe I could looking for the door to Narnia. <laughs> or, if that wasn't the case, worst case scenario, I'm going to puddle glum out. And I'm going to say, I'm going to live as much like a Narnian as I can, even if there is no Narnia. Yeah. Because I've got to believe there's something more to it than this. And when I couldn't believe that I didn't want to live,
2: uh-huh. I was
1: literally suicidal. Uh-huh. And so in some sense, not doing my assignment for school was a defense mechanism um, against um, a kind of despair that I didn't know how to live with.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's the transcendence that we're missing. Yeah, there isn't anything that can give you hope for the for the future. What's worth living for? Out of get out of the cycle that you're in. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, I was just trying to think of how it is that they would think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and argue because I always want to try and get in the head of my my. Uh, Debate opponent. Yeah, you no, know, I think that's that so would, right.
1: You know, they're, they're but that's because a they very they
0: lame picture of of uh, reality. Yeah, if they if they, you know, as you know, Chesterton and Lewis and all these guys argue that uh, that uh, reality is a lot more than just the, the difficulties of life. That's right. Right, and that there is meaning behind those things, and if you can't see that, well, then yeah, despair is the only option. That's right. I've thought that many times about an alternative to Christianity, if. If Christianity weren't true, what would be my options, mm-hmm. you know? And despair is the only option I can find. It's the one that makes any sense. That that at least is in keeping with the reality, right. right? So if you've got an education system that has excluded God from the picture to begin with, maybe the only meaningful education you could get would be one of despair, in which case they would pick the books they did. And and what's
1: fascinating about this is the the way they're trying to...
0: Sell, sell
1: us on this diminished world. Yeah. And the way they're, when you ask the question, well, then what's the point? They respond with stories.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I
1: was at a conference one time. This was this was held at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And um, the conference was about joy. And it was uh, looking at joy from a variety of perspectives. And so one of the uh, panels they had a, a a very eminent christian theologian, a very eminent muslim theologian uh and then they had a secular humanist mm-hmm. on the panel um to talk about how how what joy looks like Oh, and there was also a Hindu uh thinker as well oh yeah, what does joy look like from their various perspectives right and um and you know the christian theologian was was fairly liberal uh and and um I suppose the Muslim theologian would be considered to be fairly liberal as well because he was a prince of Jordan and he was the one responsible for foreign affairs and he was he's the reason why you can visit the Jordan side of the baptism side of Jesus because he feels that that site should be available for people of all faiths oh. to visit, which is a pretty liberal, liberal for position. A yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is so this is not an evangelical conference where everyone is just enjoying, you know, the, 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 our sort of very traditional, orthodox sphere of things. Right. the secular humanist position was so uh, s- such a stark contrast to all the other three. Interesting, right? He says, "Well, I don't really, um, from my perspective, this this idea of joy is not really it doesn't really make sense. Hmm. It's not a word that I would feel comfortable using." And so then, so, so what you what word would you, would you substitute for joy? And he said, um, "I would substitute eternal struggle." And everyone in the room is like, wow. wait, maybe you don't understand what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, and, and so for the rest of the panel, every, all the other three religious thinkers were trying to push him on this to figure out, like, what, do you, what do you really mean, right? And he, would, and he kept reaching for the myth of Sisyphus, right? This okay. is the thing that describes the human condition. Mm-hmm. We're pushing that rock up the hill, and it keeps falling back down, and we got to push it up again. Sure. And the only thing, and you say, why should we do it? And he says, because we can because there's dignity in doing it. It's uh-huh. a way of saying yes to existence.
0: That's that's kind of Camus, isn't it? Yeah, Where he yeah. said uh, you you have this moment of clarity somehow at the top of the hill, and you realize the stone is going to roll down, and that it's meaningless. You yeah. realize that yeah. it's meaningless, and you're doing and you it do for it that anyway. Yes, and yeah. that's the
1: human spirit, right? That we that's do it anyway. It. You can't make us stop, and yeah. you do it for that moment of realization. And so what you attain is the knowledge of futility. But something about that makes you want to keep doing it again.
0: It's almost heroic in Camus' eyes. It's heroic to go back down and roll it up again. Yes, and this guy
1: seemed to to completely think this, right? And so everyone in the room, uh, not just the scholars on the panel, but everyone in the room was united in looking at this guy as if he were absolutely insane. Mm. And I thought to Mm -hmm. myself, this is how the rest of the world looks at America. Hmm. Right. How can you not know, or best broaden it, look how the rest of the world looks at the West. How can you guys not know about joy?
2: Yeah. <laughs> how yeah, can
1: you not yeah. realize that there's something more than this very diminished thing you're trying to sell us? But he kept going back to his story, which was a communion story, right? Yeah. Because the story I, I would I would argue that the reason he could actually go on was because he had a, he caught a glimpse of something transcendent to his own beliefs mm-hmm. through that story.
2: In that story, sure. Right?
1: And that story gave him just enough transcendence to stay in the struggle mm-hmm. and to want to keep going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he would think of himself as being very realistic in that's the right. way that your, your teachers right. were.
1: And he would say things like, "Well, well, you know, it would be—I mean, yeah, sure, it would be great if these religious things were true, but you know, we've got to deal with the world we've got, yeah, and, and exactly. that's what the virtue is—is is dealing with what's in front of us."
0: It's interesting that the division in the debate there—division the was between those who were at least religious yep. and those then the one who wasn't That's right. Yeah. Cuz all of them are attempting to get at something transcendent even the Hindus right. Yep. So yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Wow. So but in, but in spite of all that the story is the way that the idea gets embodied, doesn't it? And that's it gets right. transferred and It's through that story that he was able to make sense of even his own theology.
1: And that's why I had to say no to the books. I felt that I had to say no to the books. I didn't have to. There's other ways. But I felt at the time, you know, come on, I'm 12, right? What do I know? That I had to say no to them because I felt like giving them my time and attention was making them more real. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I was was devoted to denying a world of that sort. And so Mm -hmm. that meant that I sucked myself into fantasy and science fiction because it told me about worlds where magic was real.
2: Oh, yeah. It told me about
1: worlds where what I could do with my hands wasn't the limit of what could be done. Lovely. Right. Great and way so to say that. I spent time there. You know, it reminds me, when I was a teenager, I worked in a the movie theater.
2: hmm
1: And uh, during that time, uh, the movie Titanic came out. Oh, yeah. And I was working at the second-hand theater, so, you know, folks would like the dollar theater, right? And, and so these, these couple of girls would come every day after school to watch Titanic. Really? After about the 10th time they showed up, I finally asked them, because I was you know, tearing their tickets, and I said, why do, you, why do you come here every day to watch the same movie? And what they said to me, is stuck with me my whole life, they said, the more times we watch it, the longer those two characters get to be together. Because while we're watching the movie, they get to be together. We by our, they, and I'm going beyond what they said. That's all they oh, said, but I'm going to interpret it a little further. Wow. Our attention is creating a space for these characters to exist together.
0: Incredible. For that happiness. Yeah. And that is the happiness in the movie that we long for. Yes. And we want us, oh, that's marvelous. We have to uh, experience the ending each time. Yeah. But then we come back so that we can watch it again for the, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So, so somehow the, the reality of that romance. Is made possible by our paying attention to it. That's right. In, in as an audience member. That's right. Gee, that's wonderful. What kinds of books did you read when you were twelve that you really got into? Do you remember? Narnia.
1: Narnia. Um, yeah. N- Narnia is ground zero of my imagination. I was mm-hmm. uh, "Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe" was read to me when I was uh, in kindergarten, and I've been reading it un- un- incessantly ever since. Oh, that's uh, great. I've, I don't know how many times I've read each of the Narnia books. Conservatively, minimum, minimum 30. Man, um, goodness gracious. At Christ. one point, I, I even, you know, I would tell people I think every adult has an obligation to read Narnia at least once, a, once every two years <laughs> to stay in touch with the childlike part of their heart. Oh, okay. I love it. So that was huge. Um, and then I loved, because of Narnia, I, I loved fantasy. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the uh, Dungeons and Dragons novels.
0: Oh, um, sure. Sort which, of Shannara? Yeah, the, that, you, kind of, well, that, that kind the, of Well, that's Terry Brooks.
1: Um, and he's got his whole other thing, kind of adjacent to that, right? Okay. And guys, you know, if you're listening to this at home looking for book suggestions, do not read the Dungeons and Dragons novels. They're not <laughs> good
0: books. Are they not good? They're I haven't no read those. Whatsoever. So you're not talking about Terry Brooks. No? I'm not talking about Terry okay. Brooks, no.
1: Brooks just gets to pass. Um, but, I mean, no, I, I read... I had 67, I, I, owned, I owned 60 of them when I was a Great, kid. Great, Scott. And, and I, would, I would save up my money. And every, once a month, they'd release a new book. And I'd ride my bike to the mall and I'd go to Walden Books, which is a chain that we had back then in the 80s. Oh. And I would pay my $5.25 with tax to buy the new paperback. And I'd come home my and goodness. I would read it very carefully so that the, the binding didn't break. And, oh, yeah. You know, so I, would, you I would keep, keep my hands dry so that I didn't discolor the pages oh, my with the oils from my hands and whatnot. Um, they were not good at all, but what they offered me was um, an unapologetic allegiance to magic and dragons. Love it, right? Love uh, it. The world was a place of monsters and heroes, yeah. And there was magic, and that meant that you could radically alter your circumstances. Wow,
0: wow, yeah. I know you're. Uh, I know you're familiar with uh, with Chesterton's orthodoxy. Mm. And that wonderful chapter in there about the ethics of elf land. Yeah. I've always been so impressed with that where he talks about how uh, fairy tales are for the purpose of making us see the, the real world yes. rightly. Yes. You know, What does he say? Uh, fairy tales, rivers run with wine so that we might always be astonished to find rivers running with water. That's right. We take things for granted in our our normal world here. But once you've got that in your mind, don't you think it spills over into your the way you look at the rest of
1: the world? 100%. Um, that was one of the things that I most loved about it growing up was that I've... I felt more magical because I had these stories yeah. in my heart. You know, yeah. No one yeah. else knew what I was up to, but I knew what I was trying to do, uh-huh. and, and that made sense to me. <clears throat> um,
0: did you ever write any stories of your own? I did, yeah. Did you, right? Yeah,
1: I did. Uh, I, I wrote it all the time. Oh, that's um, I had a, I sat up the typewriter, and I was, I was always working on some novel or other. Um, that started because when I got to the end of The Last Battle, and Lewis says you know, that was the first page of a book where every chapter was better than the one that came before it, um, I was angry. I mean, I was really mad at him because I wanted to read that book. Yeah. And I knew there weren't any more books. And so I went to my mom, and I was like, Mom, I'm mad. Like, look what he said, right? And, and she, um, she said one of the, probably the most important things she ever said to me when I told her, you know, I'm, why are you mad? Well, I'm mad because I want to read this, that book he's talking about. And she says, why don't you write it? Brilliant. Yeah,
0: right? What a great mother.
1: Perfect parenting. So I, oh, so I went back it. to the typewriter right then, and I sat down, and I started writing, oh, and I've man. never stopped. I have stopped trying to write that story. I now understand why Lewis didn't write it, <laughs> but, but I've never stopped writing. That's um, wonderful. Yeah.
0: What a great, great way to parent. Yeah. I love that. Well, let me pick up another spot you had in the book here. You were talking about education. This is chapter six in your book. You're talking about education and how important it is at the grammar and logic levels. Uh, I'm just quoting you here. At the grammar and logic levels, our task is to preserve the wonder still in their hearts Mm. because it's still there right at that young age. But then in the next paragraph, you say when you come to the rhetoric level, uh, and for those of you who are not uh, familiar with uh, the kind of traditional classical education that's been happening in the last, oh, I don't know, 30 years or so, uh, we were told by uh, Dorothy Sayers about how the, the elementary school years, the, the, or grammar school years, were uh, uh, easily affiliated with um with grammar and the logic uh, logic uh, studies were best for the junior high school kind of age years and then the rhetoric level at the in the senior high school. Now, most schools have adopted that to a degree and then gone beyond that and mm-hmm. started to see how important not only the trivium is but the quadrivium and also a lot of other modifications. So I'm not mm-hmm. trying to dictate that. And Sayers herself, I did not think, even intended to dictate that. But that's what you're talking about here. Um, at the elementary school and the middle school years, you know uh, uh, the grammar and logic levels. They still have a sense of wonder in yeah. their in their childlike hearts. But at the rhetoric level, when they get into high school, that shifts. You say somewhat the teenage years. I'm quoting you here can be years of disillusionment and increasingly the curriculum is pitting the students against the disenchantment of modernism, modernism and postmodernism. At this level, the task becomes the reinstatement of the students' minds and hearts. Can Can you expand on that a little? Yeah.
1: You know, if you think about um, a lot of curricula, we might let kids read Narnia in the elementary school. Maybe they can read The Hobbit in sixth grade or something like that. Right. By the time you get to seventh grade, um, you've got to start dealing with a lot of the books that are important that you you know, they couldn't deal with when they were younger because they were thematically inappropriate. Um, and because sure. it would it would frankly be a form of child abuse to ask right. an elementary school child to read Faulkner. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But, so, so, you know, we're just trying to get them through the reading list. And these are the things they need to know and trying mm-hmm. to get them to understand human history. And you come into modernism and it's, and it's this diatribe against transcendence. Mm-hmm. and And sometimes even against beauty. Which, right. Which is, you know, a self um, that, that argument actually deconstructs itself in the real meaning of the word because they can't help but speak beautifully against beauty, beauty right? Um, <laughs> right? And so they, they show by their own argument that they're arguing for an impossibility. Um, and so just increasingly, the types of things they're reading are things that are going to be trying to deal with um, a, a, a world that is meaningless, where hmm. meaning has increasingly been stripped out of it. Mm-hmm. If we're not very careful, it looks an awful like what we're saying is it's fine to have your fairy tales and your fantasies when you're younger, but now it's time to face facts.
0: To grow up.
1: Yeah, and growing up means dealing with the harsh realities of the world. Right. right. And right. listen, no doubt it does.
0: Sure.
1: Right. Because sure. that's that's this is a war. This is a valley of tears, and we're going to suffer and have trouble, and we've got to know we've got to have resources for dealing with that, but. There's not only suffering in the world. There's quite a bit of grace as well. Mm -hmm. There's quite a bit of beauty as well. There's quite a bit of magic. Mm -hmm. And so I always ask people, you know, they say, well, you know, what does all that fairy tale stuff have to do with the real world? And I say, well, what would you say about a world where the sun stood still, where the waters parted for the heroes and closed over the villains, Mm -hmm. Where walls spontaneously fell down at the sound of music, mm-hmm. um, where the where the dead come back to life, where grain doesn't run out uh, until the rain comes again, keeping a widow miraculously alive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just that just gets you to the first couple books of the Bible,
2: yeah.
1: right? right. Never, never mind, a world where it, where God came down as became a man, and walked among us and taught us and opened the gate. I mean, this is the very stuff of fairy tales, right? You've got yeah. King David, who's a boy from nowhere, who kills a giant and marries the princess.
2: Yeah,
1: it's all over the place, right? right? This yeah. is not. These aren't just the stories that help us to understand spiritual truths. This is the actual, factual history of the world we live in. We live in a world where these things have happened.
0: These are the myths that actually happened.
1: Yeah. And right. so we are, we are living in a crazy fairy tale world. Right. So then the question becomes, why don't we see it?
0: Right. right.
1: And so those stories shaped our civilization along with the mythological stories of the pagans. What they all have in common is the belief that what we see of reality is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And the real stuff is happening under the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it? Yes, of course, there's a reason why it's, it's raining because, you know, the water cycle, but also some god did that. Right. Um, sure. And so now we have stories that tell us that the universe is the type of thing that doesn't need any outside influence, doesn't mm-hmm. need anyone to wind it up, mm-hmm. and that actually is such that if someone from outside were to do anything to it, it would be interference, it would be fiddling. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Who are you to meddle? In the universe, let it run its course. It's self-starting, and it will bring itself logically to its own conclusion. But over the course of that, which is, which is deep death, right? Where right, every right. molecule is so far spread out that nothing can be anything anymore. Absolutely right? zero. So, But in the meantime, everything will take place. And there'll be all these beautiful things, and it will have been worth it uh, because all these things happen. Although there'll be no one to think it was worth it because there won't be anyone. <laughs> it's another story. Yeah. Right? And uh, this is, they're, they're doing the same thing. So here's, here's a big point. Maybe this is what I would need to say on this, on this uh, conversation today. Science is not the successor, um, science is not what replaces mythology in our society. Science is our mythology.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mythology is a story you tell yourself about the world to give yourself the impression that you understand why the world works the way it right. does. Right. That's what science is for us. We know it's wrong. We just don't know how it's wrong. And so it's, this is our provisional best theories. But every day, things that we think are inviolable truths of the word are getting overturned in some laboratory. And then those things are getting overturned and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's a likely story, which is a really great translation of the Greek word muthos.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is our myth. This is our myth. Yeah. I think you're right. You know I'm as you know I'm working on a musical and it's a, about a fairy tale and uh, it's very interesting for me to try to convince people who are very talented people but who have bought into the kind of disenchanted world uh, that that to re-enchant the world is a good idea yeah but interestingly enough they're artists enough that they recognize what I'm talking about as a good thing. Yeah. They don't they, they resist it. They want to subvert lots of stuff, you know, oh that's we should rechange this, we should make the princess save herself instead of, you know, waiting on the prince or whatever. But but there's still there's still a spark of love for the the the, the mythological the the fairy tale, the the uh, transcendent, yeah. the transcendent magic maybe that's the best word for mm. it. Uh, the way they look at it. Um, so it's fascinating for me to to sort of walk through this minefield with them, not yeah. step on mines, and at the same time encourage them to. I'll tell you a quick story. I I was talking to a young girl, a cousin of my wife's, who was interested in the plot of our story, and I told her told her the story, and um, and uh, I was I was trying to explain to her how the girl at the beginning of the story uh doesn't want anything to do with fairy tales. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like to keep your handsome prince, keep your magic, that's all for children, just the very thing we were talking about. That's the attitude she has at the beginning, and there's some reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, some tra- tragedy she's gone through, I'm not going to go into it all, but um, that's the state she's in. And when she goes through the fairy tale, and this in case is Rumplestiltskin fairy tale, uh, modified a bit, but never mind. And then she comes out the other side and she realizes that Fairy tales are worthwhile, and that they really have given her a, a, a bigger vision for life, and so on. So it's a happy ending that yeah. way. Um, and but after explaining this plot to her, uh, she she said this. She had just gone through her freshman year at college, mm. state university somewhere, and uh, and she said that's I, what I really love about what you're talking about is, uh, is this idea of getting getting a, 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 a renewed appreciation for the fairy tale and for the handsome prince and for the romance and for all the stuff that falls out of fairy tales. Um, she said, I've just been through my first year of college. She's not a Christian, you understand. She's not a believer. But she said, we went through this, and everything that they taught us this year encouraged the attitude that your protagonist had at the beginning. Yeah. That whole disenchantment uh, notion that you're talking about. Um and she said, they've been telling us that there are no handsome princes, that we shouldn't have our hopes set on some kind of rescue like that, uh, that that's not the way to look at life and so on. And then she said what was most important to me. She said, very quietly, but we all hope for that anyway. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That even in the, in the places where you expect it the least, there's a spark of something there. Kind right. of. You uh, Speaking of hope... Uh, which is what our show is about. Uh, You mentioned at one point in your book about uh, Pandora's box. Mm. I'm going to read you a a quote from here. Um, Let's see if I can find it real quick here. Um, So in all these ways, the fantastical offers a remedy to precisely the things that our students at the rhetoric level are struggling not to fall into. But that are bombarding them. And all I could think of was my girl. Mm-hmm. She's, she's been bombarded all year long with this. And what we're trying to offer uh, in, through our stories, and I, in my musical, too, uh, is the remedy to that. Yeah. So that they don't fall into that. Because, going back to your, your book here, because we are having them read Nietzsche, Sartre, Fa- Faulkner, all of which are good for them to read. We would never, wouldn't say don't read them, right? Yep. Quote, we are uh, going to be assaulted by the claim that the world is meaningless, not meaningful. Modernism depends, demands everything from you and promises you nothing. What a <laughs> great line. That is so true. Uh, I will take this is your quote of modernism I will take it all, all of your hope, all of your dreams, all of your belief, and you will not need them anymore, end quote. And then you say, what do you get in return? Despair. Yeah. Just the thing we're talking about, despair. And then you mentioned Pandora's box. It is Pandora's box. Everything that's left in the box entered the world. Every form of evil and suffering, but whatever stayed in the box, did not enter the world. And so cannot be encountered in this world. And this is what I'm trying to get at. The thing that was left in the box was... Hope. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the one thing, going by the myth, that we can't access somehow... In this world. Right. And so as long as the world is disenchanted that way, as long as we're not seeing anything transcendent, we are separated from any hope. Yep. And without hope,
1: um, our hearts will age and die. Mm -hmm. Um, Humans cannot live without hope. Mm -hmm. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The theological virtues. Right. Right. These are basic to human existence. And, I, and I'll tell you what we're finding, um, and you can see it over and over again, the civilizations go from uh, innocence to experience to sophistication and then death, is that uh, if you take away every hope from the people, they'll invent new ones. Mm-hmm. And, if, and the more you try to bottle it up, the more it'll come out somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the hope that cannot be Assimilated into your dying culture, your dying society, your dying civilization, will become the seed of the next civilization that will replace you. Wow.
0: Huh? Can you give us some examples of that? Do you?
1: Let's 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 take the, the easiest case of transfer that we have um, historically, which is from pagan Rome to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the privileged moment is um, Augustine's City of God, Mm -hmm. because the sack of Rome happens, which is not the fall of Rome. Um, But in this moment, um, Roman religion uh, and Roman society in general, increasingly Roman religion had been shifting away from the old gods into the emperor cult. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and so, increasingly, the cult of the emperor was, was dominating mm-hmm. public religion. Um, and Christianity comes on the scene, and Constantine comes on the scene, and whatnot, and you see this sort of waffling back and forth. And so, as, as pagan Rome was trying to hold on, what they're trying to hold on to is um, this sense of um, destiny, that we have a destiny as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is our fate to rule the world. Our job is to give the world order. And laws, and increasingly, over the past fifty years, you know, from the from the middle of the fourth century through the sack of Rome, they're watching that that fall apart. Mm-hmm. Right? We can't give order to Britain. We can't give order to um, all of the regions that are now Germany, Central Europe, France, that sort of thing. Um, we can't impose order here at home. We can't even keep uh, order within the empire. Within our own people. Right? Right? The Roman emperor doesn't even live in Rome. The Eastern Empire is separated off and is doing its own thing. Their emperor is bribing Attila the Hun to attack us <laughs> and leave him alone, yeah. right? Um, and, and there's, there's this, this lack of uh, a failure in the belief that um, a Pax Romana uh-huh. can ultimately be the solution to the world's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people... Because the people of every new civilization are the remains of a people of some past civilization. It's not like new people get created to make right. new civilizations, right?
2: Yeah. And
1: so the, the people began to realize that there is no salvation in Zeus, mm-hmm. there is no salvation in the emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, the emperor is a child and, and he's a puppet, and we've had 10 emperors in the last 20 years. Right. Right. Um, the hope. The spark of hope dies. Right at the same moment the spark of hope is dying, people like St. Augustine pick it up and say, everything you were looking for over there is over here Mm -hmm. in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is you have uh, the Roman Empire doesn't so much die as it does um, hand itself over Mm -hmm. to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Because what it does is it says... We no longer have enough hope as a culture to continue with any sense of identity. Um, Here's the hope we can find. And this is why it's so weird. This is why you can't find a fall of Rome. Because the, um, the seed that grew grew up in the old empire and it grew to maturity in a way that normally you don't have. Normally, there's a bit more separation between uh-huh. the former civilization and the next civilization. Mm-hmm. And conquest, military conquest
0: right, exactly. brings that
1: about, right? Because you raise all the stuff. You destroy their temples, you erase their cultural heritage, and then superimpose your own.
0: Like the Punic War. Yeah. yeah.
1: Here, there's coexistence.
0: yeah, And right. here, they
1: grow along together. And at some point, the people have to make a choice. And that means that on the other side of that choice, when they've decided that we're new Romans and not old Romans, we're Roman Catholics and not Roman pagans,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there's, it's still possible to look back and say, but that's our history, too. Mm-hmm. That's who we were. That same kind of continuity, is, it's sort of like what happened with Roman Greece— where listen, we're gonna we're gonna conquer you, but instead of destroying your civilization, we're gonna take it over. We're gonna absorb it. We're gonna make it our own, right? Right. And just change all the names to yeah, protect the innocent.
0: Right. Jupiter, <laughs> <laughs> instead of Zeus. And yeah, so, to protect and, the innocent.
1: And that's why and this is this is what I really bring it home for the center. That's why there's Western civilization, mm-hmm. because we had absorption. And then we had capitulation and the change from Rome to Christianity, and that allows in each of those changes you to look back at the past and see that other civilization is still you.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, so now we have that model and going forward as the the new nation states of Europe emerge in the Middle Ages and you get all these other tribes, non-Roman tribes coming in and being grafted in, Mm -hmm. this is why Charlemagne is so important because he he gives them a road to inclusion in the Roman identity, mm-hmm. right? I'm a Frank, I'm from a Germanic tribe, and I've just been named Augustus, Roman Emperor, by the Pope of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so now, all of the pagan empire with all of the spoils of Greece has been conferred upon me by the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And so now, we Germanic tribes who have accepted this new Catholic faith, we are now the legitimate continuation of the whole of the Roman Empire. And so we bring those two things together yes. in the Holy Christian Roman Pagan Empire.
2: Right, right, right. right. Um,
1: and so then all that story becomes our story. Yeah. And that turns into the nation states of modern Europe. And that there's, and then those guys go out and colonize. And so then that becomes our story here in the Americas and over in Australia and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. It's so true. It's so true. And we still read the Greeks. We still read the Romans. And we read them, if we're Christians, we read them through the eyes of Christianity. But we still read them. So they still we still claim to claim to be the descendants of Plato you That's know right. we, and uh, and uh, Marcus Aurelius and people like that yeah. uh, and yet we well, like the work that Augustine did for Plato and the work that Thomas did for uh, Aristotle mm-hmm. uh, interpreting them to a degree through the lens of scripture but it but it's not you're right it's not a cutting off of those things we still are rooted. Our culture is rooted, our civilization, not our culture, is rooted in the uh, uh, the readings that we've gotten yeah. from those past organizations. There have been times in the past when uh, a change of uh, civilization happens by a complete annihilation of mm-hmm. that, like the Punic Wars I was mentioning, because uh, Carthage just doesn't exist after that, you know. Yeah. Um, but 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 not our case. not our case, and right. uh, somehow there's a there's and, a grace in that. And Troy
1: is a, is the other big example of that. Troy, awesome. Troy gets annihilated as well.
0: True. Yes, right, uh-huh. yeah.
1: And then that should be the end of it, right? It should be like Carthage. <laughs> We're done. Troy was destroyed. You lost. Okay, game over. Greece is awesome. Right. But somebody escaped. <laughs> uh uh-huh. uh-huh. Somebody escaped to found Rome. Right. And somebody escapes to found Britain. Which is right. going to come back in a big way in the Middle Ages in Britain's own story of who they are and King Arthur and mm-hmm. these other sorts of
0: things, right? It's traced back to, to uh, it's all traced Troy. back to Troy. That's right. And
1: so that's the, the the question of, and then this this is this is proverbialized, right? When you when you dist- when you go into an upon a blood feud, for instance,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you sow the seeds of your own destruction,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: I kill you, and so now your kids are honor bound to kill me, yeah. and then my kids are honor bound to kill them, and this thing goes on and on and on. And we see that in the Odyssey. That's what's happening at the end of the Odyssey with Odysseus and the suitors' families, and it takes a god to step in and stop it. Yeah. And we see this in Beowulf. Beowulf, the Beowulf poem right. is going on and on and on about how destructive the blood feud is and how there's no end to it.
0: We see it in Aeschylus. You
1: see it in Aeschylus, where
0: right. where the, the the son kills the mother because the mother killed the father. And
1: so then the Furies pursue the son, and it takes Apollo and Athena to step in and judge.
0: Exactly. Right.
1: And so we've been we've been obsessed with this idea. Um, that's how civilizations move forward: is the destruction of the one is the seeds of the of the next one and also the seeds of its own destruction going down the forest. So, but what does that mean taking it out of world history into a larger concept like intellectual stuff? Well, it means that what we see happening in modernism and postmodernism is exactly the same type of thing that we used to do with armies, which is you take the stories and you criticize the stories, you you Mm -hmm. critique the stories, you problematize the stories in order to undercut their authority Mm -hmm. because you don't want the identity they're asking you to have.
0: And those stories were holding the group together. They were. Yeah.
1: And so if we don't want to be Christians, we've got to rewrite the story so that there's room to be secular. Mm-hmm. But then how do you glue those things back together? And how do you communicate that to make sure that your kids are going to be the same sort of enlightened secularists that you are? Mm-hmm. You've got to have new stories. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so Cinderella's problematic, they would say, because of all these things. But we also love it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take what we love about Cinderella and we're going to recast it in a way that tells our story. And so you, mm-hmm. you get these, you get the classic fairy tales now being retold in, by Hollywood in ways where the woman is the heroine and doesn't need the man to save exactly. her. Exactly. Right? Because that's the story we need to tell going forward.
2: Right.
1: And that's really, that's really important. And that's really great because women have had a, have had a rum deal in history. But... We have to remember that the princess doesn't represent women. The princess exactly. represents all of us. Exactly. And what the if we all so, do need someone to come in and rescue us? What if we find by repeated efforts over and over again that we can't save ourselves? That World War I can't save us and World War II can't save us and yeah. Russia can't save us and America can't save us? Mm-hmm. Will our stories have space for us to recognize that we need to look for salvation from outside of our current sphere? Increasingly not. Because we don't believe that there's anything we can't do if we work together. Right. that's the biggest lie humanism ever told.
0: That's humanism. The optimism of humans.
1: Yeah, secular humanism. That the causal powers of humans collected over time is infinite. It just Mm -hmm. isn't.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, Yeah, so true. I was thinking about what you said a little bit ago about... Uh, about the law uh, under the Romans that uh, the assumption was that the law somehow would put everything right. And and, uh, as you were saying that I was thinking about the Norse mythologies Mm. where Odin is the lawgiver and gets basically trapped up in his own, tricked up in his own laws. The the more laws he made, the more tangled the web is and the more impossible it is to break free. And there's something that 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 Norse mythology understood about the nature of law that was important mm-hmm. uh, and then i think of course the christian biblical picture of the law is that way too that um, you know, the law that we we are given by god is not intended for us to be able to manage on our own to fulfill on our own in fact if it has a a message it's that you it's far more profound than you think and you yeah. can't reach it even if you had a thousand lifetimes, yeah so some would respond with despair there, but mm-hmm. that's the beauty of the gospel that there's a that there's one who kept the law for us right yeah. so there's a way out and that that you know that that story that story being the true story, mind you, but still a story uh is the one that i have, uh, how can I put this i've read a lot of other stories i've read. Hindu scriptures. I've read Confucius. I've read Nietzsche. I've read Plato. I've read a lot of people along the way, and um, and I've never seen anything that would touch the gospel story that way. Yeah. I, you think about think about uh, if you have any doubts about the faith, um, and I think all of us do occasionally. Um, all I can hear in my head is Jesus asking Peter, are you going to leave me too, you know? Yeah. And Peter says, where can I go? You've got the words of truth. Yeah. It's that way I think about this idea that there is an absolute law that you have to perfectly uh, uh, accomplish or you can't be right with God. Right. It's simply that clear. Yeah. And yet his grace has made it possible for somebody to accomplish it for you. Right. So it It shows you both halves of the equation at the same time in the person of Jesus, where the lawgiver is the one who pays for the the penalty so that you can be free. I've never seen anything like that. Not Greek mythology, not Roman mythology, not Norse mythology. It's astonishing to me.
1: Absolutely. I think that's exactly right.
0: But it's the story that then, you're talking about how it not only identifies us, because we can identify with it, but, but it gives us a picture of the world that rings with the truth, with yeah. how things are, you yeah. know. Well, I'm grateful for all the work you're doing with fairy t- fairy stories in particular, I, I've uh, always been a fan of fairy tales and uh, not only fairy tales but Tolkien and Lewis's work and uh, Chesterton's work and uh, MacDonald's work and so on. I used to read those to my son when he was ch- a child. Uh, the Curdy books, you know, Curdy mm, yeah. uh, Princess and Curdy, and Curdy mm-hmm. and the Goblin. And, um, but all of those give what, uh, gee, now I forget who said it, maybe it's Tolkien said. That it's not that kids need to be protected somehow from dragons. It's that they need to know that there's a way to defeat dragons. That's right. They're going to have dragons in their lives. And so to read Faulkner is not inherently a bad idea. Yeah. But if you only read Faulkner, or you only, I'm mean, just using him as an example of that kind of disenchanted world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you only read him, then what you think is that there isn't any way. That's right. Out, and what a horror that is. Yeah. And it's not true. That's the point, isn't it? If you, you say, I'm giving you realism, I'm giving you real, but it's not real. <laughs> that's that's right. not, It's only a part of the story. It's not the whole story. That's right. The
1: world, uh, we see the world through weird eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, our eyes are funhouse mirrors because they've been warped by sin. Mm-hmm. And so everything is distorted, but that's the only way we've ever seen it. And so it looks normal to us. And so if someone wants to show us the way the world is, they've got to show it to us through an inverted funhouse mirror that redistorts it in all the opposite ways to how we distort it Mm -hmm. so that it seems right. Mm -hmm. And to us, it would look like the weirdest thing in Mm -hmm. the world, Mm -hmm. right? But that's what it actually looks like. And I think that's what Fairyland does. I think that's what fantasy stories do. I think that's what all good stories do Mm -hmm. is they, they, they distort the world in order to show us the world more truly.
0: Beautiful. Wow, that's a great place to stop. Well, we thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, and hopefully hope really we'll fun. do some more of this down the road. Um, and uh, we would love to have any of you uh, engage with us by sending uh, an email to us at director at centerws.com, and we would be very happy to read your letters uh, on future episodes and discuss the concerns, the questions, the uh, comments that you have about this particular podcast or any of our past ones. We thank you, uh, Junius, for coming to join us, and we look forward to a time in the future when we will uh, do some more. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again next time.